0: You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right. Good morning. New city. Let's crack open the word of God together. Nehemiah chapter eight and nine. We're covering today. We're covering a lot of grounds today, um, but it's kind of one unit of text. So we're going to, we're going to see if we can get after it today. While you're turning there, um, I want to wish our church a very happy Mother's Day. Um, moms are the unsung heroes of every family. Amen. Goodness gracious. It, uh, it never stops. Momming. In fact, my own wife this morning is home with a sick kid, um, and that is dem- demonstrative of your calling as mothers, and so we want to honor you, and also I want to be aware that today um, is a hard and complicated day for some of us in the room. Uh, you may be coming in and have an estranged relationship with mom. And so you're gonna have to make a phone call that you've been dreading for a couple of weeks, or um maybe um you have at a point in your life lost a little one. And so today is a reminder of the pain. And I want I want you to know very clearly um that Jesus, the risen Lord, sees you this morning. He knows your pain, um, and he is near to you. Okay. Our savior is no concept. He is a personal savior. And so I want you to be encouraged that Jesus is with you um, this morning. Um, We're going to go ahead and read the text before we dig in. Here's what we're going to do. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read all of chapter eight. The first five verses of chapter 9, and then I'm going to kind of bounce through chapter 9 and give you some highlights, okay? It's going to be a lot. I want to prepare you for that on the front end. But hey, if you didn't read the Bible at all this week, we get to read the Bible together right now. Okay, so we're going to be excited about it. It's going to be great. Let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 8, it says this. in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbeth, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave, gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with, with the priests And the Levites came together to Ezra, the the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the court of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And all the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, stand, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse six, it says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. In verse 9, it says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. In verse 16, it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. In verse 22, it says, And you gave them kingdoms and people and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. In verse 26, it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they created great blasphemies. In verse 32, it says, Now therefore, our God the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Verse 36 through the end says, behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the king whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Okay, that was a lot. Okay, that could be the sermon, right? Any questions? Let's pray. You heard the text. I want to give us some context on really two levels right here, starting in the immediate context of the story. I don't want you to miss what's happening here. These people, remember, they've come back from exile. They had been taken out of the land that God had promised them because of their disobedience. And God, because He's faithful, He brought them back to the land. And as they came back to the land, Nehemiah has been organizing the city. He's been rebuilding the wall to protect them. And now here in chapter 8, we see that the physical renewal has happened of the city, but now we're turning to the spiritual renewal of the people. Nehemiah is going, man, if we keep these people safe, but they're internally dead, it doesn't matter, right? If you fix the outside, but you don't deal with the people on the inside... It's not going to matter. And so Ezra, our good friend, he stands up. They build him a little wooden platform, not probably much different than the one I'm standing on this morning. And he starts to read the law. And the rest of what you see in this passage is a picture of what happens when the word of God gets into the people of God. Okay? When the Word of God gets into the people of God, things change. But listen, there is a difference between the Word getting on you and the Word getting in you. Does that make sense? And so I'm going I'm to go ahead and disappoint us. We see this beautiful episode of the people. They turn toward God. They start repenting of their sins. That means they start thinking differently. They start acting differently to be a witness to the nations around them. And in two chapters, all of this is going to come unhinged. This is foreshadowing to us. See, here's the thing about the Old Testament narrative. I like to think of looking at a story like this, there is so much good here. It's like walking into a beautiful mansion. I want you to picture the bougiest house you've ever walked into. But when you walk in, all the lights are off. And you're trying to feel your way through the dark, and you stub your toe on a $10,000 sofa. It stubs just the same as a cheap Ikea couch, right? You walk in there, the lights are off. It doesn't matter how beautiful the house is. If the lights aren't on, you can't see it. This is the beauty of how we have perspective of getting to read a passage like this, okay? We walk into the finely furnished Old Testament, and guess what? The lights of Jesus come on and make sense of a passage like this for us. How, do, how does the word of God going from just getting on the people and making them feel bad for a minute to actually getting in their hearts? That is what Jesus Christ has purchased for you if you are in him. See, the prophets, they tell us that a day is coming When God is going to put a new heart in you, he's going to replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And when that happens, you start to love what God loves and your obedience comes out of the overflow of your identity as his follower. And friend, when Jesus resurrected, he purchased that new identity for you. We get to make sense of this story in light of Jesus. And so we have much to learn here. We get to learn the pattern or the cycle of pursuing spiritual renewal. Who of us in this room does not need spiritual renewal this morning? Refreshing, reviving. Friends, that's part of why we called our church New City, because we wanted to see the gospel renew this place. How do we attack that? Goodness, I've, I've been reminded multiple times this week, the number God is keeping in front of our leaders right now is 195,000. And here's what that number is. If census data is even remotely accurate, there are 195,000 people in our city who are far from God, who have no meaningful connection to Jesus or a healthy local church. That is an overwhelming number if God doesn't show up. But if he shows up, goodness gracious, watch out, right? He starts to show up right here. We're getting shadows of that. And so, friends, that's how we see this story on the ground, right? It's the story of spiritual renewal. And then at the high level, right, we're making sense of this story in light of who Jesus is. And so I'm a simple guy. I want to give you three simple things I want you to see from this text today, and we're going to get after it. So in the cycle of spiritual renewal, you're going to see conviction of sin. That's where we start, okay? Number two, genuine repentance. And then number three, worship and wonder. Worship and wonder, that's it. Um, Conviction of sin. I'm not going to go back and read the whole first section of chapter 8, but I want you to look. Um, At the very beginning there in verse 1, it says, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So the water gate, I don't want you to think about Richard Nixon. That's not what we're talking about here. This This is the place where people would go outside the city to the wells and get water. So it was a place where people congregated, where people were regularly throughout the day. And all the nation of Israel has congregated there. When it says they've gathered as one man, it's it's a huge gathering of people, okay? And Ezra, he brings his Bible out to stand before the people, and he faces them, much like we're doing right now, okay? Did you notice it says here um, that the people, they stood when he opened the law. We're doing a lot of the same stuff that he did in this passage this very morning. And as he starts reading the word, Everybody is going, uh uh-oh. Look at verse 6. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. As the law is being read, they're going, Holy smokes, that's me. That's my sin. That's my sin. We agree with you. We see they're feeling the weight of conviction. Can I help you and hurt your feelings for a moment this morning? You are a sinner. You're a sinner. You have offended God's commands. You have moved against Him. When He found you, you were not okay, and He made you nicer. When He he found you, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. And Jesus stepped up to your tomb, and much like he did to our brother Lazarus in John chapter 11, he said, hey, come on out. He put life in your heart. He rescued you. And so, friends, you cannot have relationship with God without recognizing and admitting first that you are a sinner. Of all the things that the law of God is meant to do for us, we see in Romans, I believe it's chapter four, don't quote me on that one, it's in the book of Romans, if you read it, you'll hit it, Um, that the law is meant to be a placeholder until the covenant of the gospel came to play. So it was like, it was sort of a babysitter, right? Um, You don't expect a babysitter to love your kids the way that you love your kids, right? But you expect... The babysitter to keep them alive, right? You're not going to get paid if you come home and you're like, man, it didn't go great, okay? No, no, no. The babysitter, it restrains evil until the point that a better covenant can come. And that's what the law did for us. It restrains evil in the world. This is part of why we advocate for laws that line up with the morality of Scripture because we believe that these laws are life-giving, that they restrain evil and brokenness and wrong in the world. But here's the other thing the law does, what I want you to see this morning. The law is meant to be a mirror, that when you hold it up, and you see your face clearly you realize how far out of step you are with the holy god of creation i remember it was it was right before covid happened we had we'd been in champagne about 7 months and i was walking through i, I think it's macy's or jc penny whatever flagship stores at the mall in town and there's the section you walk through where there's like the perfumes and the makeup you know what I'm talking about where they offer samples that kind of thing and I remember walking through that section and there's a mirror that's a lit mirror and it's one of those concave mirrors so it's like 50 times right you see your head and it's like massive and I walked by and I caught a glimpse of myself and I went I don't look like that I don't look that bad. I could see all the lines in my face. I could see uh, the pores in my face. I could see every little detail. Friends, that's what the law does. It exposes what you really are. And it's not overly flattering. It's not. But our tendency as sinners in this world when we receive the convicting work of the Spirit of God, when we are confronted with our sinfulness, is to pretend that it's not as bad as it is. Like, man, I'm not... I love you, okay? I'm not really a liar. I just lie sometimes. What? And then Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is filled with grace. Understand, he is filled with grace. He is. But if anything, he doesn't loosen the commandments. He intensifies them. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. We are kidding ourselves. If we think that we are not deeply sinful and broken. And friends, this doesn't just happen on the individual level. This happens on the cultural level right now. I realize this is a sensitive topic, but I want to equip you as your pastor right now. There are so many conversations going on about abortion and reproductive rights right now, right? And in those conversations, what tends to happen is language gets used like um, health or medical procedure. But do you see how sanitized that is to what's really happening? that it's it's the murder or ending of a human life? And when we sanitize language like that, here's here's what happens. Um, Roman or uh, James tells us that um, when sin is little. Uh, then it gives birth to death. The longer that it grows, the longer that it grows. And so when we sanitize language around something like that, we, we promote something that's so broken and busted up and that's wrong and broken. And listen, when a woman is put into a situation around something like that, understand there is a multitude of grace at the throne of Jesus. I want you to hear that this morning. If you're in the room and you've even had an abortion or you've paid for an abortion or something like that, you understand there is grace and mercy for you at the foot of the cross. There really, really is. But to sanitize language around that, we kid ourselves. We lie about our own brokenness. And I want you to think in light of Jesus right here for a moment. See, they were condemned by the law and going, we see it, we hear it, and we want to do better. And that's the same thing that you and I feel when we get real and honest about our sins. We see it, we feel it, and we want to do better. But can I tell you this morning that because of Jesus Christ, you have new power to obey. You have new power to obey him in his commands. Friends, this morning, what if we were just really honest with ourselves and really honest with God and we didn't hide behind our language, we didn't pretend that we were more than we are. If we are not willing to receive conviction of our sin, can I tell you, that is the quickest way to block the legitimate activity of God in your life. But if you get honest, oh goodness, there is hope. There is so much hope. When we're convicted, we start looking around and going, what do I do? What do I do? You see this early on in the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. Um, the, uh, whoever, Stephen or Paul, or sorry, Peter will stand up and preach this sermon and go, man, you rebelled against the commands of God. You, you actually killed the Redeemer himself. His blood is on your hands, but don't worry. He rose again and he's come to save you. And one of the, one of the quickest questions out of the mouths of the people in hearing this is, what should we do? how do we respond to this conviction? Because listen, if you just get convicted of your sin, but you just stay there, that's a miserable existence for you. Ray Ortland Sr. says it well when he says, half-hearted Christianity is the most miserable existence because you know enough about your sin to be destroyed, but you don't know enough about your Savior to be happy in him, to realize the redemption that you have. So what do we do? And the New Testament authors tell us real clearly, and we see it even patterned here in our text, repent. Repent. Jesus says it very clearly in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. This new rule and reign is here. It's present. Repent and believe the good news. Think differently about how this world works in light of the king. And that's what our friends do here, even in the book of Nehemiah. Notice there in, uh, in verse 13, they have been grieved over their sin. They're feeling it, right? And the priests are coming in. They're like, no, 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 this is a time of celebration. And then out of that, in verse 13, it says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Okay, so they're as they're reading the law, as they're seeing this vision of God more and more, they're realizing aspects of obedience that they hadn't been walking in. This is what happens when you open the word of God, right? You open it and you go, Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know this is really who God was. I didn't know I was even called to this aspect of obedience. I I have been in a personal season over the last three months of realizing that as a quote unquote professional Christian, like I get paid to talk about Jesus all the time, that there were simple commands of Jesus that I wasn't obeying. And man, as I, as I started to realize that, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can, you can talk, all the game about, uh, talk all the game you want about knowing about God, but do you obey him? Do you love him in keeping his commandments? The answer for me was, goodness, no, man, I've got more repenting to do. See, repenting is not a one-time event at the beginning of your salvation. No, no, no. Repentance is the ongoing ethic of the people of God. The more that you see in this book, the more that you get the heart of God, the more you're going to see where you need transformation and change. And so they realized: oh, we were commanded to do this thing called the Feast of Booths. This was an ancient Israel, um, Jewish feast where basically the people were reminded that for so many years they dwelled in the desert, right? Wandering around the Feast of Booths um, because there's a... Uh, When they would set the booth up and they would put the branches over the ceiling, rain and the weather could still come through. It's like, this isn't a very good building, right? That's the point. It was to be a reminder to them of the days that they were in the desert and how God provided for them. And so they see this feast and they're like, we have to get after God in obedience. Can I ask you, what is your attitude toward obeying Jesus this morning? You can be so honest in your heart. Are you coming in and you're going, I am hungry to please God. I want my life to count for his glory. Are you coming in and going, I really don't like having a boss. And I am grating against his commands. There are things that I hear and I wince and I flinch or I even find myself feeling embarrassed by the commands of Jesus as I live out my faith in the public square. What is your attitude toward obedience? Tim Keller says it interestingly. He says he says religious people repent of their sins, only Christians repent of their good works. Think about that a moment. Not that you shouldn't do good works in the world, right? But it's it's what Paul said, right? That our righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God as the people of God we realize that even even our best attempts our motives are laced with impurity and brokenness and that's where grace abounds my friend noel introduced to me a few weeks ago the phrase busted up missionaries i like that i feel that i'm like man we we tend to think like disciple makers people who are going to go renew this city Gonna make a difference. We're gonna share the gospel with people that those are like the really sanitized, finished people. Those are the people who know the most. And friends, I'm telling you, man, Jesus makes a strong habit of of using people that we probably wouldn't let on the worship team, right? If we're honest. Like that Jesus' ethic is to use people who are going, oh my goodness, if God doesn't show up, I'm going to blow this whole thing apart. I'm going to break this. Is that your temptation in church to be like, goodness, if I was honest there, if I really told these people what I thought and what I felt and what I'm experiencing, I would break this whole pretty thing. Can I tell you, this thing is a mess, but it is Jesus' mess. Will you receive that today? Because listen, if you won't, it will block you from actually being able to repent of your sins. Notice, when they repent, when they start moving toward obedience, they do it together. Repentance is very rarely isolated to an individual. Repentance happens in relationship. Goodness, I don't don't know half of... The places of brokenness without friends in my life. You know what? Because they're experiencing me. They're experiencing how I really am. So the people of God are reading the word. They begin to hunger for obedience. They're discovering, and notice they rapidly obey the commands of Jesus or the commands of God. I want you to notice that they rapidly obey. They don't spend 12 months doing a study on the Feast of Booths. Do you think they understood every aspect of significance in the feast on day one? No, they didn't. See, this is a a brokenness of the Western church. Like, I'm I'm a theology guy, okay? I love learning about God, understanding Him as deeply as I can, You should love theology and doctrine. They bless us. They help us. So I am not belittling our view of doctrine here. Not at all. But what I am saying is the obsession of fully understanding every minutia before we obey is leaving half of the church on the benches. When in reality, God has called this whole church into the game. The best place that you learn is on the mission. The best place you grow in obedience and repentance is on the mission. So friends, in the grace of the Lord Jesus, can I give you permission this morning from his word to try? Like just show up. You know what a simple and good prayer for your life is? I don't know how capable I am, Jesus, but I'm available. Like, I'll say yes. Will you just say yes to him? Don't resist him. Like, if you simply say yes, you will be shocked what he will do with your life. I'm telling you, if you're looking and you're going, man, it feels like everybody else is in on this secret of Christianity. And they talk about this vibrant love for Jesus or this thing that they have. And I just don't experience that. Can I ask, in your heart of hearts, are you really available to him? Are you really opening yourself to obey his commands? Jesus says it quite clearly. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will do what I say. A verse like that should make us shudder just a little bit. Because goodness... I don't do what he says so much of the time. That should inspire me to obey more faithfully. But here's the thing. You have to recognize the grace of God as your empowering force in all of this. Romans 1 tells us the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It is his kindness. And friends, that's where... The passage finishes on in, in verse or in chapter nine. What we see in the second half of verse five in chapter nine, it says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all a blessing and a praise. And what happens for the rest of this chapter, friends? is they go off on worshiping God. Like they're remembering who he is. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven the heavens of heavens with all their hosts. Do you see the power of your God this morning? The God powerful enough to speak the cosmos into existence. The God who built atoms and oceans. The God who constructed love the god who who dreamed beauty and glory that god has somehow made himself personal to you in jesus christ in verse 9 it tells us that he saw the affliction of his people he heard their cry, and then he went up to bat for them. Friends, as you came to the edge of your broken repentance, as you couldn't change, as you couldn't make things right, God saw the affliction that sin was causing and putting on your shoulders. And you know what he did? He did not turn up his nose against you, though he rightfully could have. Instead, His very eternal Son put on flesh and bones and stepped into this world to redeem and rescue you. He hears your cries and He sees your affliction. And in this worship song, they're honest, right? That confession is coming back out. In verse 16, he says, our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. I mean, they they squared up against God and said, you're not the boss. I'm the boss. And they see it. And it leads to death and to brokenness. And yet in all of that death and brokenness, verse 22 tells us that God still continued to give them the kingdom. He gave them a place. And then again in verse 26, and we rebelled against you again. It's this cycle of rebellion and blessing and care of God. And then the rebellion of the people and the blessing and care of God. You have been eternally blessed in the person of Jesus. Ephesians says that you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so often, in receiving that grace, we have a casual attitude toward obedience. And friends, with our brother Paul, we have to ask the question, should grace abound so that we can sin more? Like, do we have grace so that we can do whatever we want? No, 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 that should never be our attitude. Grace is like the fire in the furnace that empowers obedience. So friend, this morning, I need you to hear, if you are oblivious to your sinfulness, if you're going, man, if I'm honest, I just don't see it. I don't know what to repent of next. Will you look at your God for a moment? You cannot look at God without realizing the differentiation in this relationship. If you keep looking at him and you get honest with yourself, you will see. And you and I must recognize that in Christ, our repentance is only possible by the empowering grace of Jesus. And here's what that does. It starts to instill a spirit of worship and wonder in a people. You know who will reach this city? It's not just the people who obey the commands. It is a people who are blown away by Jesus. The fuel for evangelizing those who are far from God. Well, it will not be enough to know that you have to. Though I want to commend to you, when you don't feel it, obey. But I'm telling you, long haul, you're going to have to catch a vision of who Jesus is. Because if if you're not obsessed with Jesus, you're not going to obey his commands. Not for the long haul. And so friends, see his heart this morning. In your sin and brokenness, he came after you. I'm aware in talking about this cycle of spiritual renewal, conviction of sin, genuine repentance, worship, and wonder that some of you are coming in and you are like, I am in such need of renewal. I am so dry spiritually. I feel so far from God. I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I feel like a stranger in this room. If that's you walking in this morning, can I invite you to just be honest with God? Maybe tell the person you brought, who came with you or who brought you, what you're experiencing. What might God do in us? What might he do in our city if we pursue his heart? In this way, let's pray. Holy Spirit, You are, without a doubt, poking around in each of our hearts right now. There is a place that, if we're honest, we know we are out of step with the commands. And the commands feel heavy and they feel impossible. And it's true, with on our own, they are heavy and they are impossible. And that's why, Jesus, we need a new heart more than anything. Will you help us to repent in both our minds and in our actions? Will you stir our affections? Make us a people of worship and wonder at the power and beauty and glory of Jesus. We pray in his name today. Amen. Well, friends, as we respond, we typically do that in three ways here at New City. Number one, we reflect. And so I want you to give some space to the Spirit. What is that area that He is convicting you? That you're realizing you are out of step with the commands of God. I encourage you, take a note of that in your phone. Write it down in your journal. Remember it. So that you can take that back to Jesus and take it to your friends. The second thing we do is we remember His death by taking the Lord's Supper. There are two stations here in the front and then two in the back of the room where you get a little cup of juice and a little wafer. And that wafer represents the broken body of Jesus and the juice represents his blood spilled. And friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to come and take the Lord's Supper this morning. And when you come to the table this morning, I want you to remember that without Jesus, Repentance, real repentance, is impossible. He did not just give you a second chance because you and I would have done with the second chance the same thing we did with the first one. He gave us a new heart and it cost him everything. So take and remember his death. And then finally, we rehearse. We rehearse the day coming when obedience is not a fight or a struggle. That when Jesus says, jump from your heart, you willingly and joyfully say, How high, Lord? That day is coming. And so, friends, regardless of where you feel in that journey today, I want you to sing as if the future is true now. Sing with the hope of the coming kingdom that Christ will bring, new city. I love you. Respond when you're ready.